Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Catherine Frank, who is a cultural anthropologist, sex researcher, and author. Her research has been published in some of the top sex journals, and she has written two books, with the most recent being Plays Well in Groups, A Journey Through the World of Group Sex. We're going to be talking about Dr. Frank's fascinating career path and research. In the first half of the program, we're going to discuss how she worked as an undercover stripper in several gentlemen's clubs as part of her anthropological research. This work formed the basis for her first book, which is titled G-Strings and Sympathy. In the second half, we'll be exploring her research on group sex, including why people are into it and how to navigate sexual encounters involving more than two people. This is going to be an amazing conversation, and I can't wait to dig into it. So let's get to it. Hi, Kate, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. I've been following your work for many years, and I'm thrilled to have a chance to finally speak with you. This is one of the things that I absolutely love about podcasting, which is that it gives me this chance to connect with so many incredible people in the field who I haven't yet had the opportunity to meet in person. So to get started, let's talk about the work you did in graduate school, exploring what really happens inside a strip club. My understanding from media articles I've read about your work is that you spent six years working in several clubs as part of your background research for your doctoral dissertation, and also for the book, G-Strings and Sympathy. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey and specifically why you wanted to study strip clubs in the first place and why working inside of them was crucial to your scientific understanding? Sure. Yeah. I was originally interested in eating disorders and how women felt about their bodies. And my original idea was to study women who were actually working in the sex industry and working as strippers. So I started a pilot project on that and then realized pretty quickly that it wasn't so hard to understand their motives just because of the money, the freedoms that the job offered, things like that. What became most probably salient to me as a question was why the men were there. These were clubs, this is a while ago, so the clubs did not offer anything except looking. So there was no contact, they weren't lap dancing clubs. And I specifically chose those clubs for the research because I found that when you involve orgasm, it's going to bring a different clientele. So the clientele I was interested in were the men who are willing to pay every night for an interaction with a girl who may or may not get naked for them, but was certainly willing to on the stage or in a private dance, but there was no contact involved. So the actual field work for the dissertation was about 15 months. Um, that was a very structured part of the research, but my experiences weren't, you know, during writing the book and before that. So I had six years experience. And when I decided to design the project, I chose clubs that were different in one city from the most highly rated to the lowest tier clubs, because I really wanted to see if there were class differences in the clientele and in what they wanted from the dancers. So it turned out to be fascinating. I mean, the customers actually tended to be uh, similar in terms of social class and disposable income and that sort of thing across the different tiers of clubs. But they had different fantasies about both women and about the seedy underworld of strip clubs that were motivating their experiences. Yeah, and that was going to be one of my questions is what were the demographic profiles or backgrounds of these men, which I think you covered a little bit. But, you know, something else related to that is how many of these men were married and in relationships and were seeking another sexual outlet outside of that in some way. Did you have any sense of how many of the men who were visiting were, were married or in relationships versus being single? Yes. And I realized, let me just backtrack for one second, because um, you had asked another part of the question about why working was the best way to get the information that I didn't answer already. And I'm an anthropologist. So the idea that you do as the natives do and try to get as close as you can to certain experiences in order to understand them was very important to me. I didn't want to go in and 
drop off a survey or something like that. I really wanted to get at the psychodynamics and underlying motivations of these men's experiences. So working was the best way to do that since I couldn't actually be a customer. So in some ways, it was a very traditional anthropology project where I was, you know, going native to some extent. After I was hired, I went through the audition process like anyone would. After I was hired, I did tell them what I was doing. Some of them didn't care at all. Some were intrigued by it. No one said that I couldn't work because I was also going to be writing a book. And all my interviews were done outside of the clubs. So I would meet people in the clubs and I was focused on the regulars, but then I would conduct the interviews off-site. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that for better context for how all of this worked. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about conducting the interviews off-site was some of the interviewees were actually scared of me and revealed that later during the interview saying, I thought maybe, you know, you were working for gangsters and you were going to roll me in the parking lot. (laughs) I was like, really? Me? (laughs) But it was another sort of fascinating look at the fantasies that were motivating the excitement of their visits. So to get to the question about being married or in relationships, because that really was an important part of the regulars experience. A lot of them were. One thing I did not do, and I I wish I had in hindsight, probably everyone has that in a project, is I didn't collect data on what percentage of the men each night were regulars versus one-time customers. I can say that during the week and weeknights and weekdays, it was mostly more regulars. And then you got Friday and Saturday night where you got the influx of occasional, you know, bachelor parties or other outings. And I would also say that most of the women's money was made on regulars, not on those occasional customers. But unfortunately, I didn't actually collect those statistics, which I probably should have tried to figure out a way to do. But at any rate, of the regulars and the interviewees, you know, probably two-thirds were married or in long-term relationships. And I found some interesting patterns there that really became the basis of the latter part of the book. And that was that for these men, going to the clubs was sort of a way to rebel against their primary partners. It was a triangulation in a way. It was crossing some lines. It was important to them in a way that their partner, wife, or long-term girlfriend didn't approve completely of the visits. But it was also important to them that they weren't actually cheating. They all were very aware that there were other places in that city where they could actually get contact or pay for an orgasm. It was a pretty varied sex industry in the city, but that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to draw the line at looking because they didn't want to overstep their own boundaries. And that actually led me into the projects that followed that, where I started looking at people's boundaries of monogamy and how they understood monogamy for themselves and for their partners, because it's not always the same uh, agreements that people come to. So it was kind of more exploring the fantasy in a way where you're not having that physical contact or that physical sexual experience, right? Right. Yes, that part was important. And it was also a place where they could talk to someone about their relationship. And a lot of us dancers would call ourselves therapists because we spend a lot of time talking about wives and girlfriends. And it's interesting because I think a lot of men don't have the same types of outlets among their male friends for talking about their relationships. They would say, the interviewees would say, you know, that the expectations around their male friends was to kind of pretend everything was okay, to laugh off issues and just try to make light of it. When they really wanted to talk to someone, it would be a woman. But at the same time, in a lot of relationships, especially those that are more, have traditional boundaries about monogamy, you know, their access to female friends where they could meet one-on-one and sort of talk more in depth was limited. So they did use their encounters with the dancers for that kind of conversation. It sounds like a potentially very expensive therapy session in a way. (laughs) But it's interesting that you mentioned that point about how some of the other dancers referred to themselves or kind of thought of themselves as therapists because that's something I've heard from many people in the sex work industry where 
they're kind of serving this therapeutic role in a way. And so much of the work that they're doing is about communication and about intimacy. And so as I'm thinking about everything that you're talking about here, I'm thinking about some of the research that I've read on sex work and why men hire sex workers. And, you know, the popular perception of it is that men are just kind of there for a momentary physical release. And it's all about sexual gratification. But when we're talking about heterosexual men, a lot of them are really looking for you know, more of what we call the girlfriend experience, where they're looking for some intimacy, some connection, some communication. And so while sexual arousal might be part of it, that's not necessarily the only driver or the main driver behind all of this. And that's not just true for heterosexual men. You also see this in gay and bisexual men and also in women who patronize sex workers is that they're often looking for a lot more than just sexual thrills. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I have to ask, since this work was part of your doctoral dissertation, did you run into any issues with your committee or with the university in trying to incorporate this work into a dissertation? Because I think some people who might be listening would kind of be curious as to how all of that works, especially because universities and IRBs, institutional review boards, are often very heavy-handed when it comes to sex studies, to say the least. You know, for example, I'm thinking about how when I was a a master's student, the university that I went to wouldn't even let you ask about sexual orientation on surveys, anonymous surveys, because they deem that to be too personal. And I also have heard from many colleagues who want to do sexual arousal studies where they need to show some type of pornography or erotic stimulus to participants in order to arouse them, that the universities and the IRBs won't let them even show that material to the participants. I'm curious if you had to navigate any complex issues there with the university or the IRB to be able to carry out this work. I think it's unfortunate now that it is such a difficult thing to do because, you know, the most unscrupulous journalist could go in and, quote, study something without any type of IRB oversight, right? And academics who are trying to do careful work are now being caught up in some of that red tape or misunderstanding. I have to say, when I went through, this was quite a while ago, and I found that my university was extremely supportive. My committee was very supportive. We were also in anthropology. Sometimes field studies were even exempt at that time, but because I was doing psychological interviews and interviewing more than once, I did go through the very traditional IRB process, but they were very supportive. Even when they came back, I think one of the drafts of the my proposal, they had said, well, we want you to collect signed consent forms, but keep it anonymous. And you know, when I wrote back, well, that's not actually possible. Even if I keep the <laughs> form separate from the interviews, I can't keep keep it anonymous. But, you know, we worked that out and I was able to let them use pseudonyms. Everyone had pseudonyms and I was very careful with my tapes. And interestingly, I actually followed all of my IRB stuff very, very carefully. And a few years later, when I think I was writing the book at that time, I had already finished the PhD and everything. I was writing the book, but one of the clubs was subpoenaed in a court case. And so the FBI came calling and wanted to know why I had worked with so many clubs and what I knew. And, you know, I was not worried at all about any of the legal repercussions. None of the interviewees could have been traced. I was also very supported by my university. If you know something had come up, they would have helped me legally. It ended up working out all fine. But that's the ideal IRB, right? Is to support you and help you if there are any complications from your work and not to like shut down research that's being really carefully thought of. Yeah. And I completely agree with that. And I think oftentimes the resistance that we see with IRBs and ethics boards more generally when it comes to sexuality research is that it's more about sometimes imposing a certain morality on the researchers or saying that certain questions are just off limits and shouldn't be asked. And then there's also the public relations side of things, right? So I'm thinking about the professor I know who was told she couldn't show 
erotic videos to students and their logic and reasoning was that, well, we're a state-funded university and if this gets covered in the media, they're going to say that we were using state funds to show porn to college students and that's just not going to look good for us, right? And so those are kind of like the reasonings that I hear oftentimes. And so it's not really about the science. It's more about the discomfort that centers around a lot of sexuality issues. And I know that I've had to do a lot of IRB education at the universities I've worked with because there aren't a lot of sex researchers. And sometimes when my sex studies would get sent to the IRB, that would be their first time ever dealing with the sex study. And so I'd often have to sit down with them and talk about how this all works and why this is an important area of inquiry and the safeguards and all of these other measures that we're taking. So I'm glad that you had a positive experience with this, but it's just an unfortunate reality that not everyone gets to, you know, kind of have that experience and that support from committee members and IRBs. Yeah, and there's an assumption that talking about sex could be harmful. And one of the things I found, and especially when I started interviewing people about monogamy as well, one of the things I found was that people were very grateful to talk. They wanted someone to talk to about things that they couldn't, you know, approach family and friends about. Some of them said they wouldn't even talk to their therapist about some of their sexual you know, fantasies, desires, and experiences. And so I think that assuming that, oh yeah, of course, maybe it will be upsetting for someone or they'll be triggered somehow from an interview. So you should have the information on the consent form about a therapist or some type of you know, outreach or debriefing. But at the same time, there's a lot of people, way more people in my opinion, who appreciate the chance to talk to someone who's interested and knowledgeable about sexualities. Absolutely. And I've had a sort of similar experience where, you know, as somebody who studies sexual fantasies, oftentimes a lot of my participants are opening up to me about their fantasies for the first time in their lives. They've never told their partners or anyone else. And so it is kind of a therapeutic or cathartic experience for them. And many have followed up with me separately to to thank me for that opportunity because it's something that they've hidden from the rest of the world for their entire lives. And, you know, something else I can mention here is that they've also done some studies looking at, you know, how do participants respond to sex surveys? And does this, is it inherently traumatizing or distressing to do so? And the research is very clear that on average, no, it's not. And that you know, occasionally some people do have negative reactions to these surveys. But what's really interesting about the research is that they compared people's reactions to sex surveys to surveys where they're taking just more general psychological tests, you know, that have nothing to do with sex. And people feel more negative and more bored and, you know, all of these other Mm -hmm. things when they take general psychological surveys, right? Those are actually more distressing in a way because I think with the sex surveys, people are getting something else out of it. And like I said, there's, there's sort of that cathartic element for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. So let me ask, you know, how did all of your experiences change the way that you view men who visit strip clubs and how was that perception different at the end of your work compared to when you first went into this? Well, there was a time in my undergraduate life where I was pretty much an anti-sex work feminist, anti-pornography, anti-sex work feminist, where I thought it was all very demeaning to women. And so, you know, by the time I entered graduate school, I was really already thinking in a much more complex way about it. But I think, you know, the, the title of the book with the sympathy in the title, I think that I really became more understanding of men's positions, not necessarily that they weren't still at times demeaning to women or that they didn't still make more money. I mean, one could never forget that this is their play money, right? And this was our living money. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a difference there just based on the laborer customer dynamic. But at the same time, there were they were also feeling wounded by cultural norms and expectations around masculinity and around femininity. So I think that my view became much more complicated. 
I was never one of those people who said, oh, the women have more power or the men have more power in the clubs because I just don't think power works that way. It's not about the single interaction. Yeah, there may be one five-minute time where a dancer has some type of power over her customer, but what counts is what how that translates into other spheres, whether financial or personal, political, legal. And, you know, there's still disadvantages that structure a lot of those encounters. At the same time, there's a lot of women who feel very personally changed and empowered by their experiences in the sex industry. So I'd say the experiences of both customers and, you know, workers run, you know, the whole gamut of possible experiences, depending on some of the privileges that you bring in already, right? I was a pretty privileged dancer and I could say no to interactions that I did not want to engage in, right? I could work at the nicer clubs. I could work at the lower tier clubs. I wasn't saving my money to fix a broken front tooth the way some women were in the lower tier clubs, right? So there's all these advantages that are structuring those interactions before you even get to the exchange between the customer and the dancer or any type of sex worker and client. But at a personal, individual psychological level, the customers didn't necessarily feel powerful. They didn't feel more powerful than the dancers at every moment. And there were men who wanted to sort of switch places, even in fantasy, to be the one who was desired for their body, right? Mm -hmm. Not just their money or what they could provide, right? They wanted to be desired. And so in that way, like looking at the dancer was not just a simple act of, you know, oh, I get to look at a naked woman. It was more like, wow, I wish someone would look at me this way. So I just thought that it was all more complicated. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the importance of actually going into the setting and getting that firsthand account, because, you know, it's one thing to talk to other people and learn about their experiences, but it's a totally different thing when you immerse yourself in a sexually diverse environment, by which I mean, you know, one that you have never personally experienced before. And something else I'm curious about, and this is something you talk about in your work, is about what heterosexual men are attracted to in women, right? And I think a lot of people, when they think of strip clubs, they think that the performers are going to be these supermodels who conform to popular media ideals about what women's bodies and breasts are supposed to look like. But it's not necessarily the case that all the women who work in strip clubs are, you know, carbon copies of, of one another, right? So can you talk a little bit about kind of that diversity in the performers and also in terms of what it is that men seem to want when they're going to these clubs? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's sort of like the power issue, you know, there's some things that are sort of structuring the idea of beauty outside of the clubs that are going to be there no matter what. So for example, youth is one of those things, you know, you're going to find most of the dancers are going to be young. That's just how it is. Youth is one of those things that's pretty much prized. And if you get a club with all older dancers, it can be a really different environment. There are a few of those that are more, more like destinations or kind of experiences, but not really used as strip clubs, if that makes sense. But I think beyond the fact, you know, of youth and aging out of the industry, which most women have to face if they work in the sex industry, I was surprised when I first went in at the variety of bodies. Not only were they more diverse than I would have, that I expected going in, they're more diverse than, you know, magazines or, um, you know, popular culture, would you have you believe? And also, not every man wanted the woman who looked like the supermodel. So I did work in some clubs where everyone there was, you know, perfect. We had to do checks before we went out. The manager would check all your makeup, your clothes, your toenails, everything to make sure it was perfect. Your auditions were, you know, fully nude under fluorescent lights. So they were looking for a very specific type. But that type of club did not appeal to every customer. There were other customers who wanted women just who were really different from their wives at home or women who they thought were living a different kind of life than they ever would. So some of the guys who went to like mixed race clubs or lower tier clubs where they would interact with women who they felt they could save, 
you know, their desires were different at times than the men who wanted to go to the top clubs in the city where Playboy Bunny would be appearing that evening. And then also there's the fact that the money that the women made was not necessarily directly related to how they looked either. It was more about how they interacted and how the types of experiences that they were able to provide for the customers. So some of the women that were not necessarily most classically beautiful were the top earners because they were able to give that additional part of the experience, whether it was listening or catering to fantasies or just being more accessible in every way. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And all of this points to how these clubs and the patrons and the performers, there's so much more diversity there than the average person might expect. And these clubs, performers, customers, they're not all interchangeable, different people, different motives, different environments. And so thank you for sharing all of that because I think it's really fascinating. One thing I wanted to ask, though, before we switch topics is there's some research I've read on strip clubs and specifically in terms of performers and what they make. And they found that when a female stripper is ovulating, that she experiences a spike in her tips compared to other points of the month. And that for women who are on hormonal birth control, where they don't ovulate and they don't have a you know change in hormones and during the course of the month that they have very steady tips. I'm curious if you're familiar with that research and if you buy into that idea that ovulating strippers seem to get a boost in tips because men are, you know, maybe subtly picking up on their pheromones or ovulating women are changing their behaviors in ways that make them more desirable. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, let me just say I'm pretty solidly convinced by some of the research on um, smell and sexual desire and attraction. The the problem with that study, if I remember correctly, and it's been a while since I went back to it, but, and this is also from my experience, it's not, not easy to find young women who are not on hormonal birth control. Right. So to find a population of strippers to compare the ones who are ovulating and not ovulating, but are not on the pill or some other form of hormonal birth control, I just don't know how they even found enough of them to compare, I believe it was a pretty small sample. Yep. You know, again, it's just young women, they're sexually active, the hormonal is the easiest thing to take. So I'm not sure how they can compare that to the women who are on hormonal birth control in the same environment, right? And are also having variability in their tipping. So I think that type of research has some interesting potential. I love the sweaty t-shirt studies and things like that. (laughs) I think that, you know, if I was a young woman who was looking to get married, I would certainly go off the pill for three to six months before I made my choice, because I do think there is an effect of the hormones. Whether men pick up on that, I mean, the research on smell, and I mean, it shows that men are fooled by a lot of different signs of ovulation and even youth. Yeah. And I I agree with you that I would like to see those results replicated in another study before we, you know, have a lot of confidence in them that, you know, there really is something to that, but I've never seen an attempt to replicate that particular study on ovulation and tipping. But I do agree with you that when it comes to pheromones and smell, like that there is more there than meets the eye. And this is one of those areas of research that I think has been pretty neglected. And there's a growing amount of work finding that smell is actually one of our most important sexual senses. And in fact, there was a recent study I saw published in Archives of Sexual Behavior finding that women who have a stronger sense of smell have more orgasms and more pleasurable orgasmic experiences. And so there's a lot more to our sense of smell and how it affects our sexuality than we might think there is, but we still have a lot to learn there. Now, we have much more to discuss, including Dr. Frank's research on group sex. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. 
Permescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is cultural anthropologist, Dr. Kate Frank, and our next topic is group sex. Now, I previously recorded an episode of the podcast on threesomes, and if you haven't listened to it yet, it's episode 14, and it's really fascinating. I interviewed Dr. Ryan Scotes about his research on threesomes and some of the fascinating things he's found. But I want to go beyond threesomes. Threesomes, of course, are one of the most popular types of fantasies involving group sex, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to multi-partner sex. So let's talk about sex in larger group settings. In my own research on sexual fantasies, I found that orgies and other group encounters are something that most people have fantasized about before at some point in their lives. And this is true across genders and sexual orientations. But men seem to be more likely to have these fantasies than women. So, Kate, can you tell us a bit more about why group sex is such an arousing fantasy to so many people, and also maybe why men seem to be more turned on by this idea than women? Can I just uh, give some perspective on the book, for example? You know, I did start first off thinking about writing about group sex in recreational settings, but the project became bigger because I, as I started looking into when there were situations where there was a witness or the possibility of witnesses or being witnessed in sexuality, you know, I learned that a lot of it is violent. So a lot of my book ended up being about violence and group sex and warfare and punishment uh, way more than I had originally expected. So now that doesn't mean that there's not gender differences. I'll get to the gender differences in the fantasies as well. But I think that the way that I, that I looked at it was first why not just a recreational choice that people would make because group sex has happened in cultures and times where sex was not about recreation or pleasure, right? It was about duty or procreation or even, as I said, punishment and hierarchy. So once I started opening up my inquiry across time and place, which is was very important in the book that I ended up writing, I had to sort of look at the reasons why people ever sort of went against the norms of privacy, because humans do have a norm and a preference for dyadic sex over groups. Wherever it occurs, it tends to have a you know transgressive quality to it. Now, you have sex clubs or sex parties where people become accustomed to it. But at the same time, I've never found a place or culture where it was completely a norm, a social norm or, or acceptable behavior at any place in time. If it was allowed in a certain culture, it was you know, just like regular dyadic sex, you know, it was bounded by rules and expectations and roles and certain people could have it and certain people couldn't and it had to take place under certain conditions, that sort of thing. So, you know, when we get to talking about it as, you know, a potentially pleasurable fantasy, I did find the same, that there were more men desiring the actual encounters. And I I looked at what was actually happening, so I didn't go into fantasy as you have. In fact, I used your work on fantasy, <laughs> my analysis, but I was looking at what was actually happening, you know, and what you find actually happening is that swingers clubs or sex clubs have high fees for single men and let single women in free because right. you know why there's not as many single women as single men who want to participate. It's changing. And, you know, there are groups and places and where women are desiring to participate in greater numbers. But, you know, if we go back to even tribal rituals, you know, where they, they're talking about group sex things, they were, there were a couple of accounts I found where they had to actually force the women, enough women to participate. So, I think partly, if you think of any times besides our modern time, you know, the repercussions for women were greater in terms of reproductive danger, physical danger, uh, more difficult on the body. So there were a lot of reasons there was less female participation. Yeah, and that, that lines up with 
some of the research that I've done on threesomes where I've looked at men's and women's attitudes toward threesomes and what their expected outcomes would be. And one of the things I find is that men and women are thinking about these group encounters in very different terms. And, you know, these are modern day men and women who are participating, but women are thinking more about the potential costs and repercussions of engaging in that behavior, both socially in terms of how other people will perceive them, but also in terms of their own physical health and safety, where women perceive a greater risk that they might be sexually assaulted or that they might potentially get an STI or have an unplanned pregnancy, and also that their pleasure won't be taken into account. And I find that all of these things, this anticipation of more negative outcomes, is a big part of what explains that gender disparity in terms of interest in having a threesome or a group encounter in the first place. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it lines up pretty well with what you're saying. Right. And, you know, in the lifestyle is, or swinging community is one place where I saw women exercising probably the most sexual freedom in any of the enclaves I studied in my book in a way, in terms of like multiple being, having sex with multiple men. And one interesting thing about that is that they were usually coupled, right? So there was a man who was also there looking out for them. And I'm not trying to say, you know, women always need a man looking out for them in these situations, but, you know, women are aware that there are dangers to being, you know, a, a woman in a room full of men who want to have sex with you, right? right? Having a husband or a boyfriend or someone who is looking out for you and the, the way that those rules are carried out in the lifestyle with other women and their partners too, I think it's a place where women feel quite comfortable exploring some of the sexuality that they're not able to on their own. Yeah. And since you've focused more on the reality of group sex and who's actually doing it, what have you found in terms of prevalence? So how many people have ever had some type of group sex experience, whether it's swinging or an orgy or a sex party? Do we have any stats or data there? You know, I would have to look for the most updated stats. You know, I mean, it's not a huge number when I was writing. I think, you know, one or 2% was at that time. The, The book was published in 2013. So I was using research before that. It may be higher now. And there's an age difference that goes along with that. When I first started teaching undergraduates, and if I said, have you, has any girl in here ever kissed a girl or had a threesome? You know, the hands were sparse, but, you know, a few years ago, most people in the class were raising their hands. So among certain groups, things have changed. But, you know, if I were to go interview women in their 60s, I don't, it probably would not necessarily match up or could be higher depending on when they came of age, that sort of thing. But I'm just saying there's like difference segments of the population, the population changes at different rates, right? So, you know, you may find some college students more experimental. You found some people more experimental in the 60s if they were a certain age. And then you'll find other groups for whom it's probably about the one to two percent or maybe higher again now. I don't really do statistical data collection. I tend to do more of the psychological data collection. So I leave that to others. (laughs) Um, I have to say that there's something like the lifestyle, um, I wrote about this quite a bit in the book, has seen incredible changes in the last 20 years. When I first went to lifestyle events in the late 90s, for example, you know, everyone was at one conference hotel in Las Vegas, right? And But three years later, you know, there were parties all around the country. There were circuit parties for lifestyle couples. There were, you know, in a city like New York, you could find 10 parties every weekend and stratified by, you know, the types of costumes people like to wear, you know, whether they just drank or wanted to do other things, whether they were on premise or off premise. So in terms of like the options have diversified and been commodified and it's changed things exponentially. Absolutely. And I think part of the reason we haven't known a lot historically about prevalence is because this wasn't asked about regularly on nationally representative sex surveys. I think the most recent data I've seen, and this came out just in the last couple of years, this was after publication of your book, it was from the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior, and they had a nationally representative sample of Americans. And if my 
memory serves me correctly, it was about one in five men and about one in 10 women who said they'd ever had a threesome of any type before. And it was about one in 10 men and one in 20 women who said that they'd had some type of group sex encounter, mm-hmm. which would put the numbers a little bit higher than yeah, that's uh, maybe yeah, <laughs> put it a bit higher than what we've, we've seen historically in some of the past mm-hmm. stuff. But part of that might be maybe people are doing it more, but maybe people are also more open to talking about that behavior now than they were in the past. Because while we know it's, because while we know it's still a stigmatized and, and taboo behavior, that that stigma seems to be lessening somewhat, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're looking more broadly at the the world of consensual non-monogamy and people seem to be more open to deviating from the idea of monogamy than they were in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, something that you and I have both written about before is the concept of consent in group sex. And most models of consent are based on the presumption that only two people are involved. So, how does consent work or what does it look like in the context of an orgy or another group encounter where you've got more people involved? Can you give us a sense of kind of like how that consent works and how maybe consent is different in a group setting than in a two-person setting? Sure. Well, one of the things I also want to say at the start of that answer is just that a lot of the situations I looked at did not have did not involve consent. It was basically a gang rape situation or something like a, like a lineup where, a, you know, woman with a not a perfect reputation was cornered by a group of men and forced to participate. She doesn't really fight, but she's not necessarily consenting either. Right. And around the world, the prevalence of non-consensual group encounters is it's very disturbing and distressing. So that's not to say that, obviously, if you go to look at certain countries and some places like uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, where gang rape is a big newsworthy item, you know, you're not going to find also necessarily anthropologists studying consensual group sex, even if it does happen, right? Right. Places in the world become stereotyped in terms of what they look at. So people look at the violence in some countries, they look at the pleasure in other countries. They're both happening everywhere, but at the same time, women's ability to consent to a group encounter is circumscribed a lot by cultural norms, by legal legal restrictions, and the possibility of the legal system actually enforcing your consent or helping you enforce the consent. So when we get to talking about recreational settings in, say, the U.S., which is probably where your question was going, I think you're getting to, certainly there are consent violations that happen. And there have been a few in recent years that were pretty involving for different communities, BDSM and lifestyle. But at the same time, as I wrote in my article on collective sex for archives a few years ago, like the discussion of consent that you can find in some of these recreational sex communities and parties, I was extremely impressed with. You know, the idea that you can say no is also sort of goes along with being able to say yes without uh, stigma. And so when you get a situation where a woman can be asked for sex by 10 guys at a party and say no to each of them and then say yes to one and be supported in that by the other patrons or guests of the party, it's a pretty impressive situation. Again, there are violations, but there are violations outside of sex parties and sex clubs as well. Yeah, you know, in sex, whether it's two people or a group, you can have consensual sex or there can be consent violations. Absolutely. Exactly. And if you have a lot of people to back you up in a group, I have seen a violation occur in a club and how people then around responded to it. You know, there's other people to, to support you. So I think that can also make it a very positive experience for women. There, you know, clubs and parties can have rules too, written down, like, where do you get that? <laughs> yeah, and as you're mentioning the the written rules, I'm thinking about how in some of these environments, they actually have people whose job it is to enforce the rules and to ensure that you know people are are really sticking to them. So, for example, I am on a doctoral dissertation committee right now where the student is studying dungeon monitors mm-hmm. in 
BDSM dungeons. And so these are people whose job it is to essentially go around a dungeon and make sure that the rules are enforced, that everything is consensual. And if there is some type of consent or other violation, that that person is there and empowered to intervene to stop it in case they identify something that's you know not following the rules. And I think when you have in those environments that kind of that norm and you also have the rules explicitly communicated and an enforcement mechanism that that can provide a, a greater sense of safety and, and security for people. Mm-hmm, definitely. BDSM world's been trailblazing in that area of express consent. Yeah. And there's been so much that's been said and written about consent and how it works in the BDSM community and how, you know, there's so much that other communities can learn from them in terms of the way that we approach sexual consent. But by the same token, you know, when you look outside of the BDSM world, there may be people who organize sex parties or who run clubs who don't have the same safeguards in place. And that's where I think you run a little bit more of the risk of things going wrong. And I think there's also something to be said for just kind of how much experience one has in those environments, because you can imagine that maybe somebody who is new to group sex and they end up in this situation, they might feel normative pressure to go along with something they don't want to do because they don't want to be the one who ruins the experience for other people or interferes with other people's pleasure. And so, you know, that's like a whole other dynamic, but I'm just thinking about sort of how your own experience level might also impact consent communication Mm -hmm. in those environments, especially if you're only used to communicating about consent with one other person. Definitely. And I think, you know, some clubs will do, you know, swinging 101 introductory sessions where they sort of talk about some of the norms. I've written a lot about the nonverbal ways that consent is sort of negotiated in group sex environments, you know, where in the lifestyle world, for example, leaving on a piece of clothing means often you don't want it taken off, right? And you don't want someone touching underneath it. So women would leave on something if, and that means, you know, you don't just start grabbing underneath there. But that's in dyadic situations and in group situations, there's a lot of nonverbal behavior that's also being used to ascertain whether, you know, an encounter should escalate or not. And I think developing an understanding of the nonverbal, in addition to the explicitly verbal consent, is is important. You know, sometimes you're right, people could say that they are, they consent to something, but if their body language is completely saying no, I mean, people get pretty good in group settings at reading that body language, you know, and knowing if someone's standing against the wall, you know, they're probably in a voyeur position. They're not necessarily angling to try to, you know, get involved or how are they positioning, whether gay or straight, how are people positioning themselves and making eye contact and all of those things that go into understanding whether the escalation is desired or not. Yeah, such important points. So since you've studied and written a lot about this, what can you tell people who are interested in pursuing recreational group sex for the first time, you know, they're curious about it, they would like to try it, but they don't know where to start. Like, what are some practical tips (laughs) that you might be able to share for approaching this in a positive and pleasurable way? And that could be, for example, resources that they might want to, to read or consult first or changing the mindset that they might take in to that experience. And I ask this because, as I find in my research on fantasies, group sex is one of the most common fantasies people have. But when people actually act on it, I find that it's actually the fantasy that's least likely to turn out well. And I think that's because so many people go in with this high level of uncertainty. They're not sure who's supposed to do what with whom and when and how that works. So if you have any tips you can share with us or resources for people who are interested in learning more about this world and maybe dipping their toes in the water, we'd really appreciate it if you could share them with us. I mean, there are so many resources now in terms of books and websites. And I think that one place for straight lifestyle or bisexual women in lifestyle, people who are interested in you know, mixed sex couple parties, you know, sometimes the forums that are available on the websites are really great places to pick up information about what's acceptable, what's not. A newbie couples can find themselves banned for making a mistake they didn't, 
even realize they were making, right? So say a guy starts texting someone else's wife and he should be texting the guy or she should be texting the wife and not the husband. You know, there's ways of the communication right. is expected to unfold as well. And so familiarizing yourself with the communities before even jumping in and trying to be sexual, just giving it a little bit of time to sort of acclimate to the norms and expectations, I think is pretty important. There's also taking everything really serious. I mean, I think whether it comes to a group setting or a threesome, sometimes things go horribly wrong. And if you can't laugh about that, or, you know, maybe someone has a jealous fit and everything has to end for, you know, stop for a few minutes and then that couple can work through it and come back. You know, expecting perfection is probably one of the main reasons why fantasies don't turn out or realities don't turn out the way the fantasies are, right? I mean, people want it to unfold in some beautiful way and the reality, people's insecurities might come out, you know, or someone might fall off the bed or who knows? There's lots of different <laughs> scenarios, but I think that... Or maybe the bed's not big enough. Who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> or you're in a club and the club is not what you expected. And, you know, I think that just allowing for that, the fact that the reality isn't going to match the fantasy, but maybe the reality will be more fun in a way. Yeah. And I think that that is fantastic advice and it's useful for exploring any type of fantasy, whether it's multi-partner or not, is adjusting your expectations and recognizing that practice makes perfect when it comes to sexual fantasies, right? And you might need to try something a few times and communicate with your partners before, during, and after to figure out what you might want to do differently the next time around. Because you know, maybe you'll have some unexpected reactions or something won't go the way that you thought that it would. So how do you address that and make it better the next time around? So I think that's just a good piece of advice in general, whether it's two-person or, or multi-partner yeah. sex, is adjust the expectations and communicate a heck of a lot. Yes. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation, Kate. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and to get copies of your books? Sure. Everything is available on my website, katefrank.com. So I talk there about sex relationship coaching, and then all my writing is on there and links to the books on Amazon and on academia.edu. But the website's probably the easiest place to find all of that. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Yeah, thank you for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, for a deep dive into the world of sexual fantasies and desires. And be sure to check out Dr. Kate Frank's books on group sex and G-strings and sympathy. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>